My kids love their snacks just like everyone else, but I'm really picky about what they eat. And if it's going to be something in a package, I want it to be healthy, high quality, and something that's not going to break the bank. I recently discovered Thrive Market and they check all the boxes. My kids are loving the seaweed snacks, cinnamon applesauce, and the skinny dip dark chocolate almonds. What I love most about Thrive Market is that everything is organic and non-GMO, and it's more affordable than what you'll find in the stores. If you join today, you can get 25% off your first order and a free gift. All you have to do is go to thrivemarket.com slash food issues. And for every paid membership, they give a free membership to a low-income family. So sign up today at thrivemarket.com slash food issues. I'm always trying to get more fruits and vegetables and real foods in my kids' diets, but between school, work, sports, and everything else we have going on, I don't have a lot of time. I need simple, easy kitchen appliances that can help me save time, and the one that I can't do without is the Vitamix. When I received it as a Christmas present a few years ago, I admit I was skeptical because I already had a blender, but the first time I used it, I was hooked. Unlike other blenders, the Vitamix blends everything up into a super smooth consistency, much like a juicer would, except you get all the nutritious fiber that regular juicers leave behind. And what I love most about the Vitamix is that it isn't just for smoothies. Every Vitamix has an entire range of textures to choose from, so you can use it to make dips and spreads, nut and seed butters, hummus and guacamole, muffins, pizza dough, plant-based milk, and frozen treats. Vitamix has been around for 70 years and all of their blenders are powerful, durable, and built to last. And they come with a full warranty. To get free shipping off any Vitamix purchase over $50, just go to my website, julierevelant.com shop and click on Vitamix. This is Food Issues. In every episode, we bring you experts to tackle the real challenges around feeding kids and offer practical insight to help organizations, communities, and parents create change. I'm your host, Julie Revelon. One in five kids in the U.S. has a mental disorder, and it's no surprise that COVID has only made the situation worse. Yet despite everything kids are facing, they can be strong, successful, and happy. The science really tells us certain kids are more likely to thrive, and it has nothing to do with their DNA, their zip code, their IQ, their GPA. It's stuff that we've instilled in them. That's Dr. Michelle Borba, an internationally recognized educator, a best-selling author of 24 books, and a media expert who has appeared on the Today Show and has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Time Magazine, and Dateline. We'll talk about how to use mealtimes and the kitchen to raise creative, optimistic, and resilient kids who thrive. Welcome to the Food Issues Podcast, Dr. Borba. Oh, I am so delighted to be able to be here and talking to you, Julie. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. This is such an honor for me. I mean, I remember just watching you on the Today Show for many years. So it's an honor for me to have you on my podcast. So for listeners who don't know you, let's start off with your story and your path to where you are today. Oh, well, it's been an incredibly interesting journey. I started way back when as a special education teacher. My love has always been kids. My dad was a superintendent. My mom was a kindergarten teacher, and I married an administrator. So what I began to see is that some kids struggled a little more, and the other kids shined a little more. And it was uh, basically trying to figure out the why factor. I moved from the special education into teaching gifted and talented kids, got a doctorate in educational psychology and counseling. And the most amazing thing happened is. Uh, Superintendents started asking me to speak in their districts, and it just became the speaking tour. I've now spoken in, I think, 25 different countries, and I've learned that no matter where you are, everybody has the same concerns of loving their kids dearly, wanting them to be healthy and happy, and wanting practical, simple ideas of, so how do we do that? Yeah, that's great. And so what is an educational psychologist? <laughs> Good question, Julie. <laughs> it's somebody who really, um, well, it's it's about a 10-year journey of college to be able to 
really zero in on the research and the science of psychology, but also how kids learn better. So it's tuning in primarily to what schools can do, but a big part of the school unit is obviously parenting. So it's analyzing all the best strategies and uh, evidence-based practices that raise not only healthy, happy kids, but also children who are more likely to succeed in school as well as in life. Excellent. So let's dive right in. I know that you have a a recent book that came out, Thrivers. And so I wanted to explore more with you about what you found, what the research shows about today's generation of kids and their mental health and level of resiliency, especially as we're coming through the pandemic. Okay, take a moment and everybody feel guilty, but I want to erase the guilt. (laughs) The reason I wrote Thrivers was because I kept hearing a very disturbing trend that was predominantly happening to American youth. And that was prior to the pandemic, one in five American kids was going to suffer from some kind of a mental health disorder that could be severe anxiety, depression, stress. And it was hitting kids at younger and younger levels. Now, I kept looking at that stat. And it was coming up from the most prestigious organizations from the CDC, from the American Medical Association, from the APA. So they were looking at hundreds and hundreds of diverse kids across the U.S. And then came the pandemic and a crisis only really amplifies the pre-existing issue. So that was my concern. Kids weren't thriving prior to this pandemic as, as well as they could be because their mental health was suffering. The other thing, Julie, is I decided not to just interview the experts, but also interview kids. And that became the most eye-opener experience. uh, For when I was writing Thrivers, I interviewed about 100 diverse children. Counselors gave me access to them. Their parents gave me the the green light. And it was one-on-one for about an hour each. And each teen, no matter where they were in the U.S. and where their demographics were, the first thing they said is, you know, we're the most stressed out generation. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, what's causing that? Uh-huh. They begin to give me a number of factors for it. But the first thing they always said was, I really worry about my peers. I'm very concerned about my younger siblings. They're getting iPhones too, uh, too soon. My parents are unaware of how stressed out we are and they are. And please do something about it. So that became the impetus for writing Thrivers, looking at the science that says what's causing the stress and how to flip it around. Yeah. And so do you think it's multifactorial? It's parents, pressure, social media, all of it? All the above. What I wanted to do was originally look at, so if one in five American kids was suffering from mental health disorders, and a thriver to me is a kid who says, I got this. If they're suffering from one out of five, and that means they don't have this, they're, they're missing something. The next thing was figuring out the why. And I began to look at the majority of us are quick to want to point to the cell phone. And and that is part of our kids' lives. They're a digital native and it's going to be clearly part of their children's existence. But the childhood has also changed. Uh, What we do know is that kids haven't changed. They still have the same needs as they did hundreds of years ago, 50 years ago when we were growing up. They need to feel safe. They need to feel belong. They need to feel accepted. They need to feel a sense of agency of some tools that help them get say, I got this. But their childhoods have changed and how we're raising them has dramatically changed, even though we may not realize we are. It's a more competitive society. Clearly, they're more plugged in. Play has dramatically reduced. Even when we ask moms, they'll say, yeah, our kids aren't playing like they used to. We're more safety conscious. We're a little more uh, protective about them. And of course, we worry about them. But in the long haul, it may be doing them a little more damage than good because it's robbing them of resilience. Yeah, absolutely. I found that when I became a mom, one of my biggest challenges was the fact that my kids didn't just want to go play with the neighbor. We didn't have yeah. that opportunity to just say, go to the neighbor's house and, and play. I mean, they do, but it's not as uh, common as I as as it was when I was a child. And it's it's an ongoing frustration. You know, you have to set up a play date. Why do we have to structure everything? Why can't they just play? Yeah, well, interesting what you just said. Because when we look at resilient kids, and we're going to be discussing that, hopefully, you and me, Julie, of what do we know about it? Because the science really tells us certain kids are more likely to thrive, and it has nothing to do with their DNA 
their zip code, their IQ, their GPA. It's stuff that we've instilled in them. But you've just mentioned a couple of interesting things. Number one is, you're right, we've structured their play dates. We are the ones that have to make the, the conversation opener. We're the ones who have to create it. And when we look at what's so important about play, it seems to be the best stress reducer there is. Even for us, we grown-ups, 20 minutes of a walk outside is one of the best stress reducers there is for us. Opening the door and telling a child, go and play without us structuring it. How to enjoy your own company. Go look at the clouds. Go play in the dirt. Enjoy the sand. Look at the grass. What we've discovered, those actually help a kid enjoy their own company. So it, when we look at thrivers, and phenomenal research has looked at them, they find ordinary things make extraordinary differences when push comes to shove and the kid hits the challenge. One of the things that they have is a hobby. They have an interest. They know how to decompress. So it may be I know woodwork, or it may be that I like to go play or just sit in the grass and read a book, or it may be that I like to play Legos. But whatever it is, those hobbies seem to endure and help the child learn to just decompress on their own. So I mean, the first thing that you may want to do as a parent is just look at your kids a little more and say, do they know how to enjoy their own company? When they start to get a little stressed or the family gets a little rockety, do they know what to go to? And what is their go-to? It's going to be different for each kid. I've got three boys and one kid is the book kid. The uh-huh. other kid is the sand kid or the just going outside. The other kid is the give me the ball and I'm going to go kick. But that's okay. They figured out what works for them. Yeah, that is so important. Absolutely. So what do you think today's kids lack? I mean, we talked a little bit about this, but where do you think maybe parents have missed the mark on raising this generation of kids? A a skill set of resilience. And in all fairness, we've been taught and we've been pushed as the educational psychologist that the number one determiner of our children's health and happiness and going to be success out there in their life is their GPA. So we've put it all on a cognitive focus. When you look at what do we do from a very early age, starting at two, we worried about the preschool. We worry about their flashcards. We worry about do they know their letters and their numbers. When even in reality, kindergarten teachers will tell you that the most successful child coming into kindergarten isn't going to necessarily know their flashcards. It's the kid who has that ability to get along with others. So to be able to play with others, be able to make a friend to be able to just bounce with the punches, to be able to go, oh, I don't have this, but that's okay. I can keep going, Mrs. Jones. I'll keep working on it. What we've discovered is that the kid may be coming, your child may be coming in a little delayed with not knowing the flashcards, but by three years later, he's caught up with the rest of the kids. It's that catch up of the social skills and that skill set of resilience, coping, being able to get along, being able to handle the problem and go, I got this. I've got a two-year-old grandson, and I had been reading research on that, and I was babysitting him for five days. And the one thing I kept saying over and over, Charlie, don't give up. Charlie, you got this. Charlie, be tenacious. He's two and a half. His mother goes, (laughs) what the heck did you do? I was sitting there trying to put together underneath my sink. I I couldn't figure it out. And I go, I give up. And my two-year-old goes, mom, mom, don't give up. Be tenacious. You got this, mom. She goes, oh my gosh, it was blew me away. So So it was, I decided that simple little message, don't quit, don't give up. Little things that we intentionally decide to do from an early age can actually be extremely helpful for our kids later on, according to the science. Yeah, yeah. I think as a generation of moms uh, or as parents, um, there's just this competitive nature, right? From day one, are you going to bottle feed? Are you going to breastfeed? Are you going to make homemade baby food? Are you not? Um, And do you think that that really is like has spurred on this um, mentality that we have to do everything perfectly? Yes, yes, yes. First of all, one of the reasons why is when uh, one of the greatest pieces of research, and this is going to be very helpful to you all, um, they did this, Robert Epstein looked at thousands of pieces of parenting research. What really raises the successful kid? And he said, let's look at the stuff that's based on huge pieces of science that studied hundreds of kids and come up with the, the top 10 factors. Okay, number one on the list, nothing, no brainer, but it's the family is, has a balance of warmth and structure. You love your kids desperately, but you have the rules of whatever you stand for. But the second most highly correlated on the list 
has nothing to do with the child. It's that the parent is less stressed. You're able to relax and breathe and enjoy your company. And one of the things that doesn't help us relax and breathe is this hyper-parenting competitiveness of what's she doing or what's he doing or pitting each other against one another of, oh, she's going to that school, so I've got to go to that school. When reality, it's trying to figure out what does your child need? Don't compare the kid to the kid next door because every kid is different. But if you know your child and can follow your child's path and don't have to worry about what Mrs. Jones is doing next door, but follow your own instincts, you're going to be a lot less stressed yourself. We pit each other against each other. And we've got to take a vow that says no more. We're going to just help each other be the best we can on raising good kids. Yeah, that's great. It's like old fashioned parenting, right? We have to go back to those days where it was like that. Yes. So as as a result of the pandemic and, you know, we're continuing to this quote unquote normal, um, what are we seeing with kids? Are they are we seeing any improvements in mental health? Are things getting worse? Well, one of the things that the CDC is warning us uh, about is the new trend that's happening with American kids. Now, what they did is they immediately looked at kids uh, prior to the pandemic or around April. And then of April and May of this year. And the first thing that the pediatricians began to worry about was an upsurge in visits to emergency rooms for depression, anxiety, and stress. Five to 11-year-olds, it was a 25% increase. That's for stress and anxiety. Five to 11-year-olds. That was children who were 12 to 17 it was an increase of 35%. So that should be a concern because we weren't going to ER visits anymore as a result during COVID, but it was certainly as an upswing. The second thing is it's hard to tell, unfortunately, per kid, but because we do know that children who are more resilient have a couple of things going for them prior to the pandemic. That is, they have protected buffers. They knew how to have coping skills, so they knew how to manage stress, uh, they may be different temperaments, but they had a, a ability to go, I got this, mom. I'm going to do that slow, deep breathing. If you don't have that and then a crisis comes, you're more likely to tank a little more and have that stress up. The second thing was the champions in their lives. Is the parents less stressed? Uh, what did they endure during this? Because if there's a crisis that is happening in the family and every family is going to be so different, for instance, you lost your job or grandma passed away, or you yourself had COVID, that's going to amplify it. So it all depends upon the situation. But we do know that if you uh, were more likely to be able to handle the stress yourself, and your child had the protective buffers, those are the things I'm trying to teach in, in the book Thrivers, you're more likely to have a child who is going to be able to endure during this time. That's great. That's great. So we're going to take a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the seven essential character strengths that set thrivers apart. People often ask me how I got my kids to be such healthy eaters. And the truth is that one of the best things I did was bring them in the kitchen with me to cook. And research actually shows that kids who learn how to cook eat more fruits and vegetables, are more willing to try new foods and have healthier diets overall. If you don't know how to cook or don't like to cook, the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. The course, which was created by a mom of four and former teacher, is designed to build connection, confidence, and creativity in the kitchen. In this course, you'll get more than 30 basic cooking skills, 45 videos, including a ton of bonuses, principal supply and grocery shopping lists and kid-friendly recipes like veggie bean burritos and spaghetti squash lasagna. The course is designed for all kids ages two to teen and has three different skill levels. Your kids will learn how to crack eggs, cook rice, make a salad, and safely use knives, the oven, and appliances. If your kids have food allergies or dietary restrictions, no problem because the course has a ton of substitutions. My kids and I have taken the course and it was so easy to follow along that they even made an entire recipe on their own. More than 18,000 families have taken the course and the Wall Street Journal named it the number one cooking class for kids. 
If you're trying to cut down on processed foods and get your kids to eat more real whole foods and become healthy eaters, then the Kids Cook Real Food eCourse is for you. You can sign up for the course by going to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues. And because you're a listener, you'll get a free lesson. Again, go to kidscookrealfood.com slash food issues and sign up today. So in our last segment, we were talking about disturbing rates of mental illness among our kids and our, our youngest kids. So Dr. Borber, let's take a, let's shift right now and talk about, you know, in your book, Thrivers, you talk about the seven essential character strengths that set Thrivers apart. And so what does research tell us about these traits and how they help kids cope with adversity, develop healthy relationships and embrace change? Oh, great question. My quest during all of this time, in fact, it's been almost a 30-year journey to come up with those seven, was to take all of the science that's been looking at kids. And first of all, you need to know this. They've phenomenal pieces of research that's looked at children who have faced extreme adversity. I mean, kids in war zones, homeless, children with schizophrenic parents. But despite the extraordinary adversity, and they've been studying the same groups of cohorts of children for 40 years, some kids bounce back. So now the researchers say, why? And what they discovered when I looked at it all was I started putting post-its on top of my desk going, what's the commonality of this study, this study, this study, this study? And I came up with seven traits. The seven had to be teachable. They had to be, regardless of what culture you're living in or what faith you have or what demographic you're living in, they had to be something that's unteachable. And here's the seven. Number one was self-confidence not in any particular order, but a thriver is a kid who understands his own strengths. They have a strong sense of of self-awareness and apparently a child who focuses on who, not what, and a parent who focuses on here's my kid's strength is a child who is far more likely to thrive. We focus too often on the kid's weakness and not their strength and a result, their confidence goes. So that's critical. We can talk about that one easily. The second one is a sense of empathy. They have that social confidence we've been talking about. They can connect with others, highly correlated. Children who are more likely to thrive don't have a whole bunch of friends, but they have a couple of loyal buddies and few adults in their lives. When they really have a problem, they can have a go-to agency to go to it, and it helps them thrive. The third one is self-control. They have coping strategies, Julie. So they know what their stress signs are. And the minute that stress starts to go a little bit above that normal of their heart pulsing or their teeth grinding or they start to rock, they know what to do to get it down so it doesn't go into anxiety. Uh, The fourth one is integrity. It's the parent's value system because as kids get older and push comes to shove and their peers are pushing them to do something that that goes against their value system, These are kids who don't wiver and waver. They go, I got this. I know what I stand for because you've planted it in them. And then comes the fifth one that I love is curiosity. They're open to ideas. They're open to possibilities. They're open to people. So when a problem comes, they don't give up. They go, I got this. They're problem solvers. And we can instill that into all of our children at an earlier age. Perseverance, that's the old one I tell my two and a half year old, don't give up, Charlie, keep on going. (laughs) Because when the push comes to shove, the really successful person, no matter what he's aiming for, says, I won't quit. I'm going to keep on going and I'm going to go through this challenge. And as a result, they get to the other side. The final ones is that they have a sense of hope. They have optimism. They're able to keep their pessimism down and their hope alive. And that's teachable as well. So they have this not a Pollyanna mindset, but this hopeful optimism outlet that goes, it'll be okay. I'm going to get through it. All of those, again, are teachable because thrivers are made, not born. And each one of those seven traits is also made up of skills that we can start teaching our kids when they're toddlers. Yeah. And I know you say that it's teachable. Do you think that some kids are are born this way though, with, with some of these traits? No, because each one of them we know, no, you don't have self-control when you're born, do you? No, you have to learn that. Do you have integrity? No, you have to instill that. Empathy, you're hardwired for it, 
But the research says unless we cultivate it, it's going to lie dormant and you better watch out. It has decreased 40% in American kids in the last 30 years. Wow. So we're looking at a lot of things that say all we need to do as parents is have a slightly different parenting uh, agenda, know what this parenting plan or our tools are going to be, and then look at the the simple little skills that we can teach. It's not going to be something you can teach tonight. You're just going to start going, okay, this year, I'm just going to be a little more intentional about saying, hey, take a moment here. When you got a problem, mommy's not going to solve it for you, but you tell me what the problem is. Oh, thank you for saying it. Now take a deep breath and let's find five things you could have done differently inside your brain. Let's storm your brain of possibilities. The first thing is don't helicopter the kid, right? Help him realize it's inside your head. You can do it. Just come up with a different idea and a different idea and a different idea and then go, okay, those are five different ideas. Now, which one are you going to do? Which one do you feel comfortable doing? But if you keep doing that, you have to be teaching your child brainstorming, which is one of the most wonderful ways to instill thriving in your kid and you'll make a difference. I love that. So let's talk about family meals because that's an incredible opportunity for kid, for us to cultivate all of these strengths, right? And, um, you know, I, I've talked about this a lot, but family meals are really crucial in my family. I mean, is a time every day where I get to connect even more so with my kids and find out what's going on in school and um, all of it. So let's talk about why, you know, what we can do around family meals and, and how we can instill these character traits in our kids. Julie, I'm going to reinforce everything you said and clap. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> First of all, routines are one of the best ways to reduce anxiety. So what's one thing about a family meal? Every night we sit around the table at, I don't care what the time is, but we sit down at the table and that's, at a relaxed moment, that's when we all are together. Number two, you want to instill empathy in your kid? Well, you got to learn listening. So one of the simplest things you can do at a family meal is, yes, you're going to be eating and you're going to be enjoying and you're doing all those things together. But it's also a a wonderful opportunity to learn to talk and hear what each other's saying. How you do that is each person has a moment to talk, particularly the shyer kid. Don't talk (laughs) for the child. And let your verbal kid who's always interrupting go, nope, it's Sally's turn. Everybody gets a turn. But a fabulously interesting thing you can do is before you want to say something, you got to repeat back what the person before you just said. That's going to be a wonderful idea. You want to do strengths? Simple idea to do strengths is everybody make a placemat. But it's a placemat of yourself. And it could be photos of what you're good at. Or it could be words that describe who you are. And yeah, you start that now, but you just keep adding to it and adding to it and adding to it. It's relaxed time. Optimism. You want an optimistic kid? Family meals are the coolest ways to do it because our kids are hearing, Julie, only the doom and gloom stuff. I mean, if you were a kid, how would you like to hear nothing more about every day looking at the TV and finding out how many kids people died today? So what you do is you flip it. You go to the back page of the newspaper and you find those glorious stories about children oh my gosh, they're incredible kids who are doing wonderful things in the real world. You cut out the article, you paste it on index cards, you put it in the middle of a a basket on your family dinner table. And what you do is you talk about each story each day to instill hope, like Christian Box. He's in the second grade. And what he did was become so sorry and concerned about the kids who were lonely on his playground. So he went to the principal and said, can we put a bench on our playground? Why, said the principal, because if you're lonely and you need a friend, you can sit on the bench and the rest of it could keep looking at the bench and go, oh, he needs a friend. So I'm going to sit down next to him. Well, Christian Bucks has a buddy bench on his mm-hmm. playground. Yeah, we have that at our school. Story, <laughs> yes, it did. And it started from Great. Christian Bucks. That's it awesome. went viral. Every single kid around the world has, has uh, stories from yeah. Saudi Arabia to Colombia about them. So those are just simple ways besides teaching your kid to have healthy eating habits. That's great. And so you did mention, you know, these scary events that the kids are just inundated with 24-7, you know, the racism, shootings, lockdown drills, yes. all of it, right? And so how do, yes. how do we talk to our kids about this at the dinner table? First of all, you when you have those serious conversations, you've got to have a thought in your head prior to how you're going to address it to your children. 
and you address those issues from school shootings to racism based on the age and level of the child. One of the simplest ways you can begin is, what have you heard? Because you want to really hear what your children are hearing. Don't assume they haven't heard. With every kid with an instant access to a digital phone and what's coming through on their phones is frankly scary. As they go back to school or to a play date, they're going to be hearing different things from different kids. So the first thing is, what have you heard? Because you want to be on the same plane with your child, chances are they're hearing not the actual correct event. And very often they're hearing a far scarier scenario than you're hearing. Second of all, yeah, that was real. You use the word, used to use the acronym, Julie, TALK, T-A-L-K, because there's four things you want to have in each time you have a conversation about a scary event. T is tune into your child, watch and assess how they're handling things, because even if they're not saying something, you may be seeing a different kind of a thing that's they're far more stressful or all of a sudden they're having nightmares at night. Tune in. A is just ask how you're feeling. What's going on? What have you heard? L, look and listen for the feelings that you're hearing. But most importantly, um, just look and start listening to uh, what have you heard? Oh, you think that's true or not true? For instance, a shooting. For a young child, they're scared to death. But the shooting may have happened 50 yards down the way or it may happen 5,000 miles away. And they don't have those the criteria to be able to separate those. The final K is kindle hope. And that is um, if, for instance, maybe there was a fire that happened down your alley, or maybe there was a shooting that happened in your neighborhood. What can we do to help? Can we go and offer toys? Can we plant a tree in their memory? When children have a possibility to do something that's positive, it actually helps kindle hope. For some families, it may be let's pray for the family. We do know that children who have prayer and religion in their home is highly correlated to resilience because it helps them counter the stress. Yeah, absolutely. So we're, uh, I'm Christian and I'm raising my kids obviously in a Christian home. And that has been so important for our family. Um, my, yes. my daughter had COVID in the fall and my other daughter had surgery oh. and, and it has really, um, I think just helped them realize like God's going to pull you through and, um, it's so yes. important for them. Yeah. So I love that. It's Julie, beautiful. All of it. Yeah. yeah. And all of the research affirms that it's something that children, to be able to give them something beyond themselves, to be able to give them a sense of hope. And if it's not prayer, you certainly can do that daily as a group together. But it also could be positive comments and thoughts, like we're strong together, or mm -hmm. we got this, or we'll get through it. Something like that we've discovered actually helps children counter the pessimism because those worries and those thoughts can actually become pervasive. So the pessimism be, just grows and he doesn't know how to stop it. One of the simplest ways to help your kids catch their worry is to hear the worry inside their head and be a worry catcher. And now what are you going to do to refute it? It's going to be okay. We got right. this. I'll get through it. And one of the easiest ways to do that is for you to say it so that you say, I got this. I'm really having a tough time. It's going to be okay. And what happens is your voice becomes your child's inner voice. Oh, that's wonderful. So we're going to go to a break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about some activities that we can do with our kids in the kitchen to foster uh, these, these character traits in them and, and raise thrivers. Hey, friends, if you've got kids, you've got picky eaters. And as a mom of two, I totally get it. There are foods my kids flat out refuse to eat or foods they love one day and the next not so much. Still, through the years, I've learned the secrets to raising healthy, adventurous eaters, and I want to share what I've learned with you in my free video course, Turn Your Picky Eaters into Little Foodies. In this course, you'll learn some of the most effective ways to get your kids to eat their vegetables, try new foods, and how you can put an end to picky eating for good. To sign up, all you have to do is go to julierevelant.com and click on freebies. So in our last segment, we talked about prayer and affirmations and ways that we can help build resilient kids. And so, Dr. Borber, let's talk about um, 
you know, can we also turn the conversation into activities with our kids to foster empathy and also help them think about others and, and do that in a, in a kitchen setting? Absolutely. And it's, again, everyday ordinary things that we already are doing. We can just take it up a notch. For instance, one of the things that we know during COVID that's really impacted a lot of our kids, particularly those who are a little empathetic themselves, is that they're worried about others. Like the lady next door, she's so lonely mom, and she doesn't have anybody to come over and help her. And that's a wonderful opportunity for you to say, what can we do? Or how about we bake some cookies for her? We is the key, not you, the mom, bake the cookies, but we can bake some cookies together. And then even whatever it is, but you can bake anything, but it's the delivery system that's critical. You can go one step more and you can also have one of your little artsy craftsy kids. Why don't you make a little card for, for Mrs. Jones next door or for your friends that aren't feeling so good about life? Or maybe your friend is sick. You can make what some, some Glenbard kids did, teens. They made quarantine gift bags. They baked cookies. And then their mom had a whole bunch of extra lunch bags left over that she couldn't use. Each day, what they did is they decorated the outside of the bag and they put a handwritten note in it with some made homemade cookies or whatever treats they were making, granola bars, and they did driveway drop-offs. They Each day, one kid would drive the bike by Drive it, drop it off at the end of the driveway because you couldn't go into the house or on the porch and ring the bell. And I asked how to go. The, each of the kids, the teens said, you won't believe how amazing it is. Every day, one of our friends calls crying and thanking us because they didn't know that anybody was thinking about them. And they said it made us feel so good. And then every day we cry because we know that we did something good and we have to do it again and again and again. That's so wonderful. the first thing is give not get. And that's a wonderful way to get involved in the kitchen. Glorious possibilities. Yeah. Bake together and deliver together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. So how can parents use the dinner table to talk about uh, moral issues, ethics, integrity? Are there some things that some conversation starters that you can provide? Yep. First of all, conversation starters are great. You can go on to, uh, if you go to the website, and you just downloaded conversation starters about ethics or values, you're going to get a list of 500 that you may not know is already there and free for you. What you then do is take each one of those cards like, uh, how could you make the world a fairer place? Um, I understand that bullying has happened, and the newspaper article said, what can kids do to stop bullying? What's one way that you could help um, a person who's feeling down or you saw that your friend looks upset today. What are some kind things that you could do? You put each one of those on an index card. And after a while, your kids will come up with conversation starters. You can add those and you can put those into the mix. My girlfriend had another idea. She did a centerpiece in the middle of her table. And it was nothing more than a branch that her kids found. And they put it in plaster of Paris, put it in a basket. And then what they did was they hung on the car, on the Lee on the well, it was they were leaves would have been little index cards of ways you could be kind. They started with Beautiful. nothing more than a smile because mom realized that some of her kids weren't aware of just simple little things you can do. You don't have to always give things, it can be things that you do, like hold mm -hmm. the door open for someone or say hello to someone or things that our kids haven't been doing during COVID because that mask has been covering up their face. You can still smile with your eyes. You can still smile with your hand waving. And what she did is that she then tied yarn to each one of those, put them onto the, the centerpiece, and it was their giving tree after they read the book, The Giving Tree. But she said, now let's turn it into something else. When school starts, we're going to make this into the two kind rule. Every day at night, we're going to look at two things that you can do to be kind. And every day before you leave this door, she started this at the age of three, going to daycare, you're going to say or do at least two kind things. And at nighttime, when you come back to the dinner table, we're going to discuss what two kind things did you do. It was an everyday moment, but she kept adding and adding and adding. Julie, she started these when her kids were very little. And I have watched her raise her daughters. They're now in their late 30s. They're very smart girls, but they're the kindest kids you could possibly imagine because she intentionally started the two kind rule every day with that centerpiece in the middle of her table. 
I love that. So how do we get our kids to be kind to each other? <laughs> because I hear it all the time, right? All my friends, we were always talking about it, how especially over the summer, our kids are just fighting every day, all day. Well, first of all, it's because they're poor kids. It's like they've been hunkered down in Little House on the Prairie. For life. And with the same to us, first, we got to look at ourselves. There's a few things to keep in mind. And obviously, our kids do need some space for themselves. I think when we've been putting them so far much together, what we find is that tensions begin to just grow, grow, grow. So one thing you may want to do is to create calm down corners in your own home. These are not for time out but therefore just calm where you can go by yourself uh -huh. and you find the spot. If you looked in your house and you found the time when your kids are most likely to bicker, believe me, it isn't 24 seven. It's usually the same spot in time, like five o'clock. What's going on? Well, that's the witching hour when you're trying to get dinner going and everybody's all clustered in together at the same time. Five o'clock is the perfect time. What do you do? Well, you can do one thing at your, at your dinner table. You can put a sheet over the top of it. You can use the top of it to eat, but the bottom can become the greatest reading fort known to man. My kids swore that was the best memory they had. And that was when everybody started to bicker. You can find chairs that can become forts. You can find card tables that can be forts. Everybody brings a flashlight and a book. While you're trying to have peace in the house, go read quietly or just look at the pictures by yourself. They loved that. That could be one Great. idea. Because what we do know is reading can be a great opportunity. By the way, resilient children read. They okay, that books that's great. Are a great way. First, why? Because books can become bibliotherapy. If you just had grandma <laughs> pass away and you uh -huh. find a book that can become a book about grief, they're automatically the child reads the book and goes, "Oh my gosh, that's how he solved the problem. I can do the same thing myself." Yeah, books I love can that. also be a way to decompress. So you, for heaven's sakes, the one thing is get books. The other thing is it stops the bickering because you got to read over there and you got to read over there. So you, you just put the two kids apart. The third thing is ask your kids, what are some things that help you decompress? It's a great question. Um, for some kids, it's my goldfish because I can watch them go around and around in circles. So make sure that there's that goldfish next to where that calm down corner is. Glitter jars can be glorious. You can build them and make them in the kitchen. It could be... Um, uh, again, we talked about books, but music. Kids said, listening to music by myself. 14-year-old Natalie said, I discovered Mozart. I said, really, Natalie? How'd you do that? My mom started to play it when we all started to bicker. So she just started to play music in our house. All of a sudden, we started to get a little quieter and we started to listen to it. Now I put it on my playlist. And it really helps me. That's said, great. So Natalie, what do you do when you have this up moment where you do something great? She goes, I got that covered. It's Elton John. I'm still standing. And I start <laughs> pulsing around the house. <laughs> That's Maybe great. It's finding what can help your kids decompress. But you notice that music can, first of all, separate kids. It can be really a relaxer in your house. But if you want to get some energy into your house, up the music. So do you start having your kids dance during times together? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So I love the curiosity and creativity that you talked about. And so what are some games that families can play at mealtimes that boost those traits? First of all, open-ended, any kind of games will work. Curiosity is there isn't a set answer. I've had some families come up with, how many things can you think about that are red? Or how many things can you think about that could bend? Or what's a way to get kids to get along better? Um, those possibilities. Number two, sometimes you have pipe cleaners um, and you can have a challenge that's a weekly challenge. How many different kinds of shapes can you make from your pipe cleaner? And we're going to do it before the timer goes out. Timers are a gold mine. Five minutes, three minutes, or a sand timer. Families love getting involved in those. Any kind of card games are also open-ended curiosity and ideas. Books, stop the book in the middle of it and say, my gosh, what could Ned do? What's another solution he could do? He's got a problem. How would you solve it? Uh, Legos or any kind of blocks or that kind of activities or when there's no set answer to it are wonderful. Read the book 
unfortunately, by Remy Charlotte. It's a goldmine. Poor old Ned, who's like five or six, gets invited to a birthday party. That's his fortunate. And the problem, unfortunately, is that he's in Florida, but the party is in New York. Every page takes a unfortunate and turns it into a fortunate or a fortunate and turns it into a unfortunate until finally at the end of the book, he flips it and gets finally lands up at the party. But it becomes this gold mine so that anytime your child makes a mistake, because curious kids aren't dumbfounded for them, they know that mistakes are okay. You turn to your kid and go, so what's your fortunate going to be? And it's just listening to one book, like fortunately by, by Remy Charlotte. That's, possibilities. What you want your child to be able to know that there are lots of problems out there in the world, but there's no problem that can't be solved. All you need to do is storm your brain and find a different solution. And that means that we've got to give them a lot more opportunities to do some brainstorming. That's beautiful. So gratitude, can we, when we foster gratitude in our kids, is that a way to build resiliency? Yes, it is. And that's one of the chapters that you'll see in uh, Thrivers because it's scientifically based. Okay. How do you do gratitude? Back to your meal time. You can start every meal with a prayer of gratitude of what's one thing that I'm, grati- uh, that I'm grateful for. At the beginning, your kids may often come up with, you know, my toys or things that are more materialistic because that's what they're used to saying. But after a while, they'll become more abstract. Um, that I'm, that I have a family, that I'm still here, that I'm healthy, that Mrs. Jones is my teacher. Uh, you can discover that you can also do gratitude, um, deep breathing. And that is you take a slow, deep breath. Uh, Navy SEALs taught me this one, that the fastest way to relax is a one, two breath. They said, the moment the stress comes in, teach your kids to take a slow, deep breath from deep in their tummy. Like you're riding up an elevator, get to the top. Then hold your breath. Think of one thing you're grateful for and then keep concentrating on it. You can do a prayer if, if prayer helps you as well and then slowly let it out. The, prayer, the exhale must be twice as long as the inhale. Scientifically, it is the fastest way to relax. It doesn't cost a dime. And maybe each day around the dinner hour, you can do a one-two breath before we start our meal of thinking about just in our minds, something we're grateful for. And you'll actually help your child develop mindfulness, which is highly correlated to health and happiness. That's great. So I'm a big fan of cooking with my kids. I've talked a lot about it on the podcast, and especially because studies show that it encourages healthy eating habits. And I have seen it work with my own kids. Um, it's, it's extremely effective, but it's also a great way to spend quality time and bond with your kids, right? So why is it such a great yes. opportunity to open up the lines of communication with your kids? Because it's relaxed, because you're doing something together that kids enjoy, because they can sample things along the way. Do you have a boy? We do know that usually it's a little easier to talk to girls, but if you talk to your son while you're doing something, they're far more likely to open up. And that's why baking and cooking and making meals together can be a glorious opportunity. And it also makes family memories. So, Keep doing it and find things. Begin with simple ideas that take nothing more than a spoon and for your little ones could be nothing more than a spoon and a couple of measuring cups. But you can also do it so that you're teaching reading along the way. You can take any recipe so that your your child can remember the recipe by taking an image of your child doing the task. Or for older kids, obviously they can create their own index cards and each day a different child can also rotate it's my turn to choose, and this is what I want to do, but let's all do it together. It's just a relaxed, fun time if you don't make it into a Martha Stewart routine. <laughs> just, right, let's right. just go for it and have fun together. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry about the mess. Just have fun. That's great. So, Dr. Berber, you gave us so many amazing tips, but how can we kind of make this really easy for parents who just don't have a lot of time and feel like it's kind of overwhelming? Well, first of all, the goal is to never make it overwhelming because you want to be relaxed while you're doing it. What I tried to do with you, Julie, and what we've been talking about are lots of dozens of things and ways you can do it. 
Don't try all of those tomorrow. Your kid will never let you read another book or listen to another podcast. Instead, find one thing that'll work for you. Do you like the gratitude breathing? Do you like the index cards pasted onto uh, just index, you know, on, into a basket onto your table? Or maybe it's a giving tree centerpiece and you want to try the two kind rule. The best way to make change is to identify one thing at a time. And then remember that new behaviors take around 21 days of repetition. So if you say to yourself, ooh, maybe I like that one-two breathing. I'm going to try it with my child. It's never going to work today. You're going to have to keep practicing it every day for at least 21 days. In fact, you know what, Julie? That's the one thing that teens told us, me, that we were doing wrong. You're trying too many things. And you know, if you really want to help us learn any of these stress reducers, we got to keep doing it and doing it and doing it until it becomes a habit. We got to keep practicing it. So just point out one little thing we can do and then keep doing it until it becomes a routine and we can do it without you. And that's exactly what you're trying to do. That's what we want for all our kids. So Dr. Borba, thank you so much for all of this information, research and, and tips. And where can listeners go to learn more about you and your work? Oh, thank you. Well, my website is Michelle Borba. Julie, I'm a 1L Michelle, so it's M-I-C-H-E-L-E. <laughs> and Borba rhymes with Zorba, so it's just michelleborba.com. Um, Thrivers is in audio, digital, and hardback copy. And right now it's on special at a 40% discount on Amazon. It's got dozens of ideas in there. But the goal is to find one. Remember, the one thing. And just commit to doing it a minute a day for around 21 days until your kids can do it without you. And that's how we're going to raise a generation of strong, healthy kids who thrive. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Borba. Thank you, Julie. That was so much fun chatting with Dr. Borba. And she had so many great ideas that you can start using today. I'd love to hear what you liked about this episode or any of the episodes. All you have to do is go to julierevelant.com, click on podcast, find the episode and click on the button to record a voicemail. Also, be sure to go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and a rating so we can reach more people. I'm Julie Revelant, and thank you for listening to Food Issues. You can connect with me on julierevelant.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.